Good morning, church. You should notice uh, in your bulletin something that looks like that. To uh, There will be some blanks filled in today. If you're a person who likes to take notes, that might be a little helpful guide to you. I find them helpful to keep my uh, uh, attention, to be honest. We have been talking for some weeks now um, about learning to be content. We're shifting and beginning a change now as we enter the new year and uh, pondering the idea of perhaps a three and a half year journey to make disciples. Just randomly chose that number. Perhaps. But we want to talk about shifting our thinking towards becoming disciples. Call it a, a disciples shift, a shift towards becoming a disciple, to think about switching gears, shifting our thinking, a paradigm shift. Think of all the ways. I found out this week that a shift is a dress. How many of you, wait, 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 how many of you guys knew that was true? One, two, three, four. Okay, guys, now you know. A shift is also a It's like a little short dress. Is it always short? It can be long. Somebody will have to explain what a shift is to me later. I had no idea that a shift was a dress. You, you, you go online, you look these things up, and all of a sudden you learn all kinds of stuff. I'm not talking about dresses. But we are talking about shifting. Um, I had a, a, a picture this week I was looking at. I thought about giving it to you. It was, a, it was a Lamborghini shift gear, shift setup. And it looked so awesome. And then I realized I'd rather have paddle shifters on a Lamborghini. If you don't know what those are, ask somebody else. But I realized that, that maybe, maybe the shift of the earth Maybe we're talking about something that's moving that's, that's, that's never going to be the same once shifted. You know, I, I, I shift my car. I, I, I go through the gears. I go up. I go down. I go forward. I go backward. But I want, I want to talk about something maybe more like an earthquake, sort of a shift even in the very earth itself, that, that after it moves, there's no moving it back. I don't know if you've, you've been around to some of the, the locations in California where they've marked the, the faults, the fault lines. Um, there's a great one out by the coast where you can see a fence used to be a fence and now it's a gate because the earth moved. It shifted and the two ends of the fence no longer line up. So we're talking about that kind of complete change perhaps in, in the future, in ours, in our thinking, in our direction. Now, I know when you think, oh man, we might talk about this three and a half years, most of you just started thinking about what other church you'd like to go to. But I promise if it gets boring, I'll quit before you get bored because I get bored faster. But the reason we were thinking of three and a half year assignment is because that seems to be what Jesus did. Right? He, he hung out with his disciples for three and a half years. And those of you who are going to college, you're going to have to come back every weekend. 
But what I want to think about over this next few weeks is the disciples themselves. To look into some of their eyes. To try to understand their heart. And to ask the very important question, why that guy? Right? You ever look at the disciples and say, why that guy? We all kind of do that with Judas, right? We got to go, Judas, why that guy? But look at them all. Some of those guys, the only thing we know about them is they're a twin. Right? We know that one of them was short. James the Lesser. How'd you like to be called Shorty your whole life? That's apparently what he was. James Shorty. Some of these people, we, we know only one or two little descriptive things about them. Why these guys? When you, when you have a, a, an earth full of possible candidates, at least a, a tribe, a, a Judean believers group full of possible candidates, why these guys? <coughs> I'm hoping that when we kind of look at these guys, we'll, we'll begin to understand a little bit about how you, we can look at the mirror and say, why that guy? As we begin, we're going to talk about one that is most people's favorite. We're really talking about him because he comes first in the list. Simon, called Peter. His name is a paradigm shift. Just his name. Simon, called Peter. And I want to, I want to declare one thing out, the, out at the, the start of this thing, at the outset as we begin our journey together. I want to declare that the key to discipleship is not effort. Let that sink in for a minute because most of you are treating it as if that's the case. Most of us treat discipleship as if the key to discipleship is effort. If my discipleship isn't going well enough, then I need to get my stuff together and try a little harder. I need to just keep swimming. I can do anything for a minute. We think that if we just try hard enough, we'll be better at this, right? Now, I'm not opposed to trying. I think trying is good. I think trying is an exceptionally good idea. Trying is an awesome thing to do. But the key to discipleship is not effort. The key to discipleship is harder than effort. The key to discipleship is surrender. Effort is easier than surrender. I can, I can every day get up and try harder, easier than getting up and surrendering. I can, I can do the things, I can trick my mind, I can force myself to try a little harder. I can eat salads till I hate salads to try harder. But to surrender my meals and my diet and my practices, no. That's a big call. The key to the life of a disciple that I want you to hang on to, maybe for the rest of your life, as as that shifting of the earth that you hold this forever, that the key to understanding what makes a disciple a disciple is to understand that the first thing they do is surrender. Surrender, number one. A disciple must surrender several things. We'll go through a few of them today. A disciple must surrender his self-defined identity. You have an identity, right? It comes from all sorts of things. You look at yourself and you think about yourself, right? 
Um, I am uh, probably, I don't know, 35 pounds overweight, but my self-identity is 185 as I was in high school and college. Right? When I, when I look at myself without looking in a mirror, I have an identity. I, 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 I think of myself in a certain way. And I, I have hair. It's about down to there. And I weigh 185 pounds. That's the identity that I built up inside. Some of our identities are related directly to our family. You know, your mom and dad said you can be anything. And you're still looking in the mirror saying, I could be anything. Or you haven't actually tried to be anything. You, you know, you've been kind of lazy. But you think, you, mom said I could be anything. Any day now I'll try. Any day now I'll start. Any day now that'll happen. Anything might happen to me. What is your self-identity? Do you identify with the abuse of your family? Are you willing to surrender that? Do you identify with the anger of your family? Are you willing to surrender that? Are you, do you identify with the passivity of your father or your mother? Are you willing to surrender that? You've got some internal voices. You've got some internal descriptions about who you are. You're the adventurous type. Are you willing to surrender that? What is your identity? What is it that defines who you are? How have you pictured yourself? How have you named yourself? You see, Jesus, when he meets Peter, the first thing he does with this guy is change his name. How would you like that to be your introduction to somebody? Hey, how you doing? My name's Walt. No, it's not. From now on, you're going to be Thelma. Really glad? Thelma? That's, that's what you want to do? From now on, and he brought, he, they brought him to Jesus. His brother brings him, by the way. He brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. I know who you are. You should be called Cephas, which is translated, depending on how your Bible translates this, it either translates it into a Greek version, which is Peter, or it translates it into the English version, which would be the proper thing, a stone. So Jesus walks up to this guy. He's never met him before. He says, hi, your name's Simon. I know your father, you're the son of Jonah. And from now on, we're calling you Rocky. Did he call the other Simon, Simon the Shorty? Did he? Did it, when, when, when he met Simon, the other Simon, did he say, good morning, I know your name is Simon, you're the son of so-and-so? See, we don't know. We're going to call you Shorty. Did all the disciples have nicknames? This is Shorty. This is Stretch. This is Rocky. This is Jack the Knife. Simon gets an immediate change of name. From now on, we're calling you Rocky, the rock, the stone, the pebble, granite. Immediately, Jesus begins to change Simon's identity. Immediately, as soon as he meets him. And maybe that's because he knows Simon's a hard case. Maybe it's because he knows he's a little stubborn. He's a little forceful with what he thinks and what he believes. Maybe he's got to start with him now, right, right at this point, because he knows this guy's kind of a hard nut to crack. So he starts right from the beginning with him saying, I know you've been called Simon your, all, your whole life, but next time you see your mother tell, you, tell her I change your name, it's now Peter. Get used to it. Everybody's calling you that for the rest of eternity. People are going to arrive in heaven expecting you to be standing by the gate. 
and they're not looking for Simon. Right? Number two, a disciple must surrender her giftedness. Now think about how much your giftedness identifies you. What are you good at? Something comes to your mind pretty quickly, right? Something comes to your mind. Somebody told you you were good at this or you just figured out you were good at this. Somebody paid you for being good at this. Whatever it was, your giftedness, some skill, some set of gifts that you have, you're pretty sure that those are the things you're going to be using for yourself going forward. You're a leader. You're detail-oriented. You're a natural speaker. Um, You're the person who everybody leans on when something needs to get done. You're that, you're that doer kind of personality. Whatever it is that defines you, your giftedness, he asks us to surrender. The, the story here, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, and I will change what you do. What is Peter's self-identified skill set? What are his gifts? What is, what is he good at? Well, he's been trained as a fisherman his whole life. It's probably a generational thing, right? His, he probably learned this from his family. And, he, and he, as this generational identity, his giftedness is he's a fisherman. Pastor Tim, who, by the way, is off at a Pathfinder Leaders uh, event. He's helping with that, helping actually lead that. Um, and he'll be back this next week. Pastor Tim is a fisherman. Did you know that about him? If you, look at his, if, if you look at Tim's Facebook page a couple of times, you'll start seeing pictures of Tim holding fish. And they're not, you know, this. Tim's holding a fish that takes two hands to hold up. You know, he, he's an he's a experienced and in, engaged fisherman. He doesn't eat fish. He just tortures them a little and puts them back. Come here, you thought you were going to die. Nope. Go free. Tim loves to fish. Peter was identified as a fisherman. Jesus comes along and he says, oh, by the way, you think you catch fish. From now on, follow me. If you come with me, you need to surrender your identity, your giftedness, your expectations of being a fisherman. And I will make you fishers of men. And one of the cool things about God is sometimes he actually lets us stay with what we do. In fact, I bet most of the time he lets us stay with what we're good at, what we're gifted at. But let's not forget something. All gifts are spiritual. Now that's true in two cases. First, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father. If all gifts are given by God, they are by nature, therefore, spiritual. Not all gifts are spiritual gifts, but all gifts have a source in the Spirit, in God, in the spiritual realm. So now, wait for a sec. Now you're sitting there and you say, I'm a salesman. Thank God. I'm an accountant. Thank God. I'm a leader, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, I'm a plumber, I'm a carpenter, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a tree trimmer, I'm a preacher, I'm a whatever. Thank God. 
Because first thing to recognize, your artistry, your skill set, your giftedness comes from God. Some of us look around at other people and say, man, I wish I was like them. I wish I could, you know, sing like Mikey. I, I wish I could draw like anybody in this row right here. You know, I wish I had this skill. It pays better than mine. I wish I could do that. And, and we wish away the giftedness that God has placed in our hands. Instead of saying, oh, Lord, God, thank you that you gave me at least one. I'm making a, li- a living off my one string guitar, but I'm playing that, baby. Thank you. Every gift has its source in God, whether a person recognizes it or not. But every gift has a spiritual connection when it's used by the Spirit. Some folks have been gifted in sports and have used those sports to teach children about God. You know what I mean? Especially young boys. You, get, you grab those. I don't know what the, what the attraction to round things is with boys, but balls and stuff, they're all over it. And, and you get a bunch of boys, you throw a ball out in the middle, and you can talk to them about almost anything, including God. Some girls are also as attracted to this, and I think you can do the same thing with those girls that are, that are particularly drawn to sports. But nobody ever thought, oh, you know, my ability as a basketball player will have a spiritual context. Well, yes, it will. When handed over to the Spirit of God, my giftedness always becomes spiritual in its outcome. I'm a scholar. Well, when my scholarly abilities are handed over to God, when the Spirit takes leadership among those gifts and those, that, that, that ability, then that thing becomes spiritual in nature. The application becomes kingdom-ending in nature. And the outcomes of my activity benefit and bless people for the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Number three. Three. A disciple must... Surrender their self-defined calling. So I've got, I know I have this skill set. I know that I'm, I have leadership skill. I know that I have a, uh, an accounting skill. You know I'm not talking about myself. And you know I, ha- I know I have an artistic skill. And I know that I have this little, little package of skills. And once now that I understand my little package of skills, I start looking for a way to, way to use those. And I have expectations about those things. I have expectations about what I'm going to do with those. Right? I say, okay, I know what I'm going to do. Well, I, you know, look at my skill set. I, I, I'm, an, I, I'm a natural speaker or leader, and, and I'm a, I have good uh, counting sort of skills. Uh, I'm pretty artistic. I think what I'll do is I will become the president of a business that draws stuff. Seems like a reasonable match, right? And so I start driving toward that. And I start pushing toward that. And then along comes Jesus. And he says, hey, I have a different plan. I love what you do. I love your skills. But let's move them this way. Anybody had a shift in their life like that? Anybody, any of you felt or ever felt God kind of pushing you in a direction? And here you find yourself now in some place you didn't expect to be, but there you are. I was never planning to do what I'm doing right now. I was never in my life expecting to lead a church. But here I am. And I love doing it. I didn't even know I would like it. I thought I would hate it. Especially on payday. And that is the God's honest truth right there. But I don't. And, and honestly, it's the opposite. It's actually, I get paid to do this. I, I get paid to do this. 
Well, you know you're in kind of a sweet spot when that's going on. To be able to say, thank you. It's amazing to me that they pay me to do this. Now, there's some days when I go, I get paid to do this. <laughs> Those are not the most common days. The most common days are the days when I go, wow. It's an amazing collision of calling and giftedness, and I can't believe I get paid to do this. It's amazing. When they'd eaten breakfast, this is at the end of Jesus' time on earth. When they'd eaten breakfast, you remember the story? Simon Peter has taken a bunch of the disciples and they've gone back to fishing. Do you remember that? Remember that after Jesus had died and been resurrected and they were kind of looking for a reason to exist, Peter went back to his old job. He went back to what he used to do. He went back to what he knew. They're up in the Sea of Galilee, familiar turf. I don't know about you, but even now, going home to Fremont, California, even though Fremont, California has changed a lot since I grew up there, there's something about it that just feels right. It's home. It's, it's where I grew up. I've lived here longer than I lived in Fremont, but I grew up there. And there's something about going there that just feels like my place. It feels like my home. It's so familiar and it's so interesting in terms of that connectedness. They go back to Galilee, where they're from, you know, where they're known, where, you know, they can go into the dusty back closets of their houses and pull out their leather jackets and try them on again. You know, Sons of Thunder, they had to have leather jackets and ride Harleys. I wonder how they made those boats make noise. And they went fishing again. And they're out there fishing. Peter has led them back to that. Peter is the one who said, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll go. Nothing else to do. I don't know what we're doing. And they've gone back to the fishing. They've been out fishing. They're doing poorly again. Which is interesting. Every time we see these guys fishing, they're not good at it. Until Jesus blesses them and then they're overwhelmed. I just love the fact that the Bible only points out their worst days fishing. If you've ever fished, you know there are more empty nets than full nets when you're fishing. Otherwise, they would call it catching. So they had eaten breakfast that Jesus had provided, and Jesus said to them, said to Simon Peter, note what Jesus calls him. He goes back to the name he introduced himself as at the beginning. He goes all the way back to the first encounter. Simon, son of Jonah, your name will be Peter. Jesus now turns to him and he says, Simon, son of Jonah. Do you think when Peter heard that, he felt it as a little bit of a rebuke? Did he feel it as a, oh man, okay, I know I've denied you three times. Do we have to go back to Simon, son of Jonah here? Can't we stick with Rocky? Rocky's so much cooler. I got it. New, new thing on my jacket. Sons of Thunder, Rocky. You know how long it took me to pick out Simon? So in Rocky? Simon, son of Jonah. Do you love me more than these? Now, he asks it three times and feed my sheep is at the end of it each time, but stop there for a second. Do you love me more than what? 
You see, part of the issue here is Simon has constantly compared himself with the other disciples, right? And he's often said, you know, I'm I'm better than these guys. They'll all leave you, but I'm not going to leave you. I'll be right there beside you. I'll be there. Don't worry about me, God. I'm there. Right? He's always thought himself a little superior. Is he asking for that comparison again? Would you take a guy who has problem with pride and ask him to make a prideful decision if you were God? Would you do that to the guy? I don't think I would. And I don't know. God's not me. He could do what he wants. We all should be thankful for that. But stop for a sec. What has Peter done? Gone back to fishing. Gone back to the boat, the smell, the nets. Gone back to Galilee, to home, to that lake where he grew up, to all of those things that feel right to him, the place where he feels like he belongs. He's gone back to all of that. And Jesus asked him, Simon, do you love me more than these? I don't think he's asking him to compare himself to the other disciples. I think he's asking him about the stuff, about the place, about the boat, about the smell, about the nets, about fishing. I think it's a question about Simon's choices to follow Jesus or not. Are you going to be Peter or are you going to be Simon? Do you love me more than this stuff, all of this that you do? Then remember the job I've given you is to feed my sheep, to be a fisher of men, not to be a guy who drags in nets. Simon, do you love me more than these? If you do, then I want you to get back to your old job. Go back and feed my sheep. And I'm not talking fish sticks, buddy. It's still the question. Do you love me more than whatever the these is for you? The job, the pride, the identity, the clothes, the leadership, follow me, the paycheck. Do you love me more than all of this stuff? Would you put everything else aside if I asked you to and come and follow me? Isn't that the question for all of the disciples? Isn't that always the question? Would you surrender all of these to follow after me? Would you, send, would you surrender what your expectations of the outcomes of life are to follow me? Do you love me more than these? What comes first in your life? Where, what's on top of the list for you? Am I there? You love me at the top. You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment because it's the first commandment. Because that should be the first commandment because it's the first commandment. Do you love me more than these? A disciple has to surrender the lies he tells himself. A disciple has to surrender the lies he tells himself. Shree touched on this morning. I don't know if she did it intentionally. She asked the kids, what, you, what, do you, what, what do you do when you face a job that's really hard? Do you hear what one of the kids said? I can't do it. Isn't that one of the lies we tell ourselves? God, are you kidding me? Me? No, I can't do that. Isn't that where we were last week with Moses? Wasn't Moses sitting there in front of a bush? that's on fire, that's not consumed, and that is talking to him and having an argument? Does that not seem a little weird to you? Here is God. I love the fact that people keep doing this in the Bible. I love it because I 
feel it down deep inside of here. I, don't, I have never argued with a burning bush, and I don't know that I'd have the courage to do so. But man, if you're being called to lead three million crazy, Egypt, or crazy uh, Jewish people out of, out of Egypt, man, and I'm telling you, you, you need some moxie. And he has it in spades. He's talking to God and saying, not me, man, ask somebody else. To the point where God finally fed up with this argument says, fine, we'll use your brother and you. Happy? My interpretation. Was it kind of loud? God has a big voice sometimes. We tell ourselves things all the time about what we can do and we can't do. What we should do and what we ought to do. We tell ourselves stories about ourselves. Because of what happened to me when I was a kid, I can't be that. Because of what I did before I started following Jesus, I can't do that. Because of the mistake I made, because of the emptiness I feel, because of the, the inabilities as far as I understand them, I can't do that. We actually tell ourselves some lies about what we can do as well. I can do that. But we usually are calling ourselves to do something we think is easier to reach, right? I can reach that. I can get to that. And we lower the expectations. We, we put things on the shelf that we think we are easy, easily accessible for us. I, I can't do that, but I can do that. We have, to, we have to change the story we tell ourselves. We have to admit that under God's grace and by God's hand, we can do things beyond our imagination. He dropped the rod, my friend. And when he drops it, it becomes the rod of God. Disciple has to surrender the things that he tells himself to hear the things God is speaking to him. A disciple has to surrender the things he tells himself in order to hear the things God is speaking to him. A disciple must give up her comforting crutches. You know know what yours are, right? You know there are some things you kind of lean on. In my family growing up, there's kind of a macho crutch. There's a real man sort of a crutch. There's a punch him in the face crutch. You know, you don't, you don't have to talk this through. Just punch him in the face, conversation's over. Things start to get a little bit hot. Just get mad and, and release a right. Maybe a couple. And you, you'll be done. And you know who won the argument by who's on the floor and who's walking away. I'm, I'm not, and that, that's a pretty straight picture of kind of how things were described about growing up male in my family. I don't know if you other guys have felt that, but I think Peter did. When the confrontation gets serious for Peter, Peter falls back on gang member status. Him and his best buddies, Andrew, his brother, James and John, his best friends, James and John, sons of thunder, Peter and Andrew, sons of thunder, sons of, sons of thunders, buddies. We're the tough guys around here. We run these docks. When really, when all the chips are down, he's facing the, 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 the most difficult moment of his life. He doesn't lean on Jesus. He grabs his sword. Right? You remember the story? There they are. Garden of Gethsemane. After all that he's seen Jesus do, after all that he's been through, after everything else, the final crutch it's his own abilities 
to protect himself and Jesus. I can do this. And I will do it with my fists, in this case with my sword. He whips out his sword. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. By the way, I think it says it in your little notes. His name was Malchus. Oh, the fact the Bible throws that in. Malchus, the one ear. Jesus picks his ear up, puts it back off. You would have thought that would have changed some people's minds right on the spot. Didn't. But he had to surrender that thing that he falls back on. Where do you fall back? Where do you go? And it, it, as a pastor, it's been very frustrating to not be able to fall all the way back on violence as the answer, to be honest. Because there have been a few occasions, not very many, there have been a few occasions when I just wanted to hit somebody. And I can't because I'm a pastor. And I've told my wife, imagine the headline, you know, pastor knocks out person in church. McDonald's, Taco Bell, you name the location. I've never said this in public before, but when I first arrived here in town, I was in the Taco Bell over on Rockland Road. Been there a long time. My wife and I were looking for a house with another couple, another pastor and his wife. And we were just driving around town and we'd stop to eat. And these two young men, high school age, were picking on a handicapped woman who was cleaning the restaurant. And she would sweep things up and they would throw some more stuff on the floor. And she swept and picked that up and they threw some more stuff on the floor. About the third time, I'd had enough. And she's saying to them, please, boys, don't do that again. And they're laughing like stupid high school boys do. By the way, they're probably almost 40 now. Hope they got over that habit. And I had enough. I stood up, I walked over to their table, and I said, if you don't stop this, I don't know how to tell you what I told them after that. <laughs> I told them it was going to go badly for them. <laughs> Shortly after that, they got up and left. And I was so relieved that I didn't actually have to follow through on my promise. <laughs> because I'm a pastor. How was that going to go? New pastor in town. Dots the eyes of a couple of high school kids. Where do you fall back to? Where is that home base for you? Where are you? Are you the wilting violet? Are you the guy with the sword? Which of those crutches have to be surrendered? Tell you, this one for me is, has been surrendered because of my position. Crazy as that may sound, it saved me probably a lot of trouble. I wish it was surrender because of my conversion. I'm willing. So, lastly, what is God asking me to lay down so that I can trust Him completely? It's on the bottom of your sheet. There's some lines to fill in if you'd like. What is God asking me to lay down so that I can trust Him completely? And secondly, well, there's another question. There it is. 
What is preventing me from doing it? As we start this journey towards discipleship, we, they have to, there have to be some things we surrender. What are the things God's putting on my heart today? And wh- who knows what he'll put on my heart tomorrow? But what are the things he's putting on my heart today that I need to surrender to him if I'm going to take the next step? He doesn't usually ask us to skip steps or take large leaps, but if I'm going to take the next step, what would be that thing for me? If you haven't filled in any of the other stuff on this little sheet, would you take it home and think about that last question? What is it that God is trying to get me to let go of so that we can move forward? And what what is stopping me? What's preventing me? Let's pray.